As the European football season comes to an end, it is time for Brazil's national championship to kick off. Brazilian domestic football is huge. With tons of large cities and giant clubs, there are at least 12 teams in the country which can count their fan bases in the millions. A few in the tens of millions. And year in, year out, anyone from a pool of five to eight clubs starts the season with realistic chances to become national champions. In many respects, Brazil is among the most competitive leagues in world football. Still, massive clubs like Corinthians, Flamengo or Palmeiras draw little interest from international viewers, at least compared to their European counterparts. The Premier League's new broadcast deal. Sky Sports and BT Sport are paying more than $10 billion dollars for broadcast rights between 2016 and 2019, bringing in almost $4 billion in additional revenue for the English Premier League. This is a domestic rights deal only for the Premier League. They're going to have the international negotiations open up. That is by no means only a matter of on-the-field action. Despite being known as the international capital of football, that is, at least until the 7-1 beating we took from Germany in the 2014 World Cup, Brazilian clubs have systematically failed to turn the world's most popular sport into a profitable business. But why do people, Brazilians included, perceive local football as a low-level competition? My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Ewan Marshall, you're a die-hard football fan who follows the Brazilian league very closely. Yeah, when I'm not covering the Brazilian Congress and all sorts of corruption scandals, I'm basically watching football, that's about it. In this century, we've seen a recurring phenomenon in world football. A billionaire with cash to spare buys a mid-table team, injects rivers of money, sometimes with dubious origins, and after a few seasons, the club turns into a powerhouse. The list of these new rich teams goes on and on. Just to name a few, we have Chelsea and Manchester City in England, obviously Paris Saint-Germain in France, and Leipzig in Germany. Why aren't these rich guys looking to Brazilian teams? Well, first of all, the issue with Brazilian football teams is that they're structured completely differently from clubs in Europe. Because in Europe, most of these clubs are they're run just like companies, regular companies, and some of them are even listed on like the stock the stock market. You know, they have a lot of shareholders. And in Brazil, it's very different because essentially these are social clubs. These have members, and football is just one part of their operations. Meaning, they have hundreds of owners. Yeah, it depends on the club, but some of the biggest clubs can have thousands who are able to vote on their presidential elections, which are usually like two in two years, that sort of thing. Yeah, okay, but they could change their status to allow themselves to get taken by a group or a rich benefactor or get listed on the stock exchange. The thing is, for most of these board members, 
at these football clubs, the sport isn't really their top priority because, as I mentioned earlier, these are social clubs. A lot of these people involved are just concerned with, you know, the swimming pool being cleaned regularly or just to make sure there's enough whiskey in the clubhouse bar. So who is actually calling the shots? Are the club administrators professionals? Do they have an experience or are they just supporters? Yes, some of them do. Some of them are proper businessmen. They have training, they have experience, but it's not actually a requirement. Um, To be an administrator of a Brazilian club, you don't actually need to be an administrator, you know, in in, in certain terms. All sorts of people are involved in, in, in running Brazilian football clubs. You see former politicians. A lot of former players actually get involved. And only really a handful of them actually have any formal business training. Yeah, I can't imagine these people leading responsible administrations. No, no, not really, because... Brazilian clubs are run in this really short-term, kind of haphazard way where the only thing that matters is results. So clubs will do and spend whatever it is they can just to get their hands on a trophy. That's the only thing that matters to them. So we've established that Brazilian football teams are essentially amateur-run, but it can't be absolute chaos, right? I mean, is there some sort of business model there or... Well, the first thing to to bear in mind is that Brazilian clubs cannot compete with the the major European sides in terms of television contracts and sponsorships or or the prize money they get from the tournaments, for example. Flamengo, for instance, it's the most popular club in Brazil and it has around 30 million supporters. Like half of the French population. Yeah, it's a level that no big club in Europe can really compete with domestically. And they, last year, had an overall revenue of 600 million reais. And that, for comparison, is more or less what West Bromwich Albion received just in broadcasting rights in the 2017-2018 season in England. And they finished dead last in that, in that league. So, what is the model for Brazilian teams? Well, it's changed over the years, but essentially since the mid-2000s, Brazilian clubs have become fully aware that their role is essentially just to develop and sell players to major European leagues. They can't afford to turn down big money moves, big money transfers from teams abroad. So it's just a case of trying to develop as much talent as they possibly can to make a bit of money. So you're saying that teams are always in a one-and-done mode, right? I mean, you build a good team get a big trophy, and then sell everyone inside and get the books back to black. Yeah, that has been the case for the last few years. But even even this kind of selling model is changing because with the ultimate globalization of football, these big European clubs and their scouts, they're watching young Brazilian players when they're playing for the youth teams. They're watching them before they even reach the first teams of Brazilian clubs. The best instance recently of a young Brazilian player being taken to Europe is Vinicius Junior, who plays for Real Madrid. He's their wonder kid starlet. And before he even turned 18, the Spanish club had already bought him from Flamengo for 45 million euros. And that was in a situation where Flamengo fans hadn't even seen him play for the first team yet. And he was already a 45 million euro player. And once he got into the team... 
He played around six months, less than a year, and he was already gone away to Real Madrid. And I imagine that social media must play a role there. Like, these kids already have YouTube highlight reels on their, of their own when they're less than 10 years old. No, definitely, because these days you also have these really sophisticated scouting equipment where clubs pay a lot of money for this, but they essentially have a subscription base where they can access games from all around the world. Any game that is being played, even in your kind of under-20, under-18s tournaments, they have that all on their computers. So they are able to assess these talents. They're able to watch these kids ages before they even become professional players. So we're saying Brazilian football is horribly managed, never quite seems to reach its full potential as a business, and still you don't think it's fair to call it a low-quality product. Well, the thing is, with Brazilian football, is I think what you have to keep in mind is that it is very different from high-level European football. It's almost, in some ways, it's almost a different sport at times because you don't have the organization, you don't have the efficiency in management, you don't have the greatest players. But what you lack in that department, you have in kind of real just raw sport and passion and real unpredictability. Anything can really happen in Brazilian and South American football, whereas you can watch a game in Europe and you you've seen these games before if you know what i mean they're, they're all kind of repeated a bit but brazilian football you know who's has... going to win if you see manchester city with a mediocre team right yeah there is that element to it but it's also like non-footballing things you know crazy things will happen there'll be a power cut um dogs will run onto the pitch and <laughs> you know managers will have fist fights with referees it's 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 that kind of unpredictability and just raw sportsmanship that makes it something completely different and worth watching, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll give you that in terms of the unpredictability. Um, like, you tune in to watch the German League. You know that barring a catastrophe, Bayern Munich is going to win. And I'm sure Bayern Munich fans are happy with that, but as a product, it seems boring to me. But let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Uh, unpredictability does not necessarily mean instability. And that's what we get in Brazilian and South American football oftentimes. Uh, for instance, Copa Libertadores, which would be the South American Champions League. Um, last year, we have the two teams in the final who should have been disqualified for playing against the rules. But then if you have political power, the rules can be bent much easier here than in Europe, it seems to me. No, yeah, that's de that's definitely the case. I'm not obviously I wouldn't condone uh, some of the scenes that we saw last year in the Libertadores final. That's where things go a little bit too far. But I also think that Brazilian football, at least in the short and medium term, is never going to compete with these European leagues for quality. So actually, to a certain extent, we have to embrace this madness that you have in Brazilian and South American football because it's the only thing that sets it apart. How to make passion a winning formula after the break.
Of every 100 spam messages sent in the world, five come from Brazil. And spam is not only annoying, it poses a real security threat for companies with their conspicuous links. If you want to protect your company's environment, team up with FastHelp. FastHelp is a Brasilia-based IT company that is focused on cybersecurity. Go to fasthelp.com.br for more information. Fasthelp.com.br Six of the top ten most valuable clubs in the world play in the English Premier League. Part of their success is due to the billions of petrodollars poured in by oligarchs and billionaires with checkered pasts, but as we've mentioned before, the high level of professionalization of the clubs also comes into play. Reality is different in Brazil. Consultancy firm LEK analyzed the balances of 20 Brazilian clubs and found that 14 of them posted losses in 2016. I think it's all about the way the clubs are managed and their governance model, their, their structure. This is Fernando Monteiro, one of the authors of LEK's study on Brazilian football clubs. Most of them, uh, they have a payroll that's very heavy compared to the revenue. So they, they are designed to have bad financial results. They jeopardize financial results in the name of, uh, of winning uh, the championship. So uh, what we see is that most of the clubs are not able to uh, be competitive on the field, but also financially responsible. Uh, you just have a, a few clubs doing well, which are, which are the exceptions, because most of them, they're not able to balance that because they don't run the soccer as a business. And you have to make sure uh, the financial discipline is mandatory and it's sustainable. You're going to have some uh, real uh, responsibility in the way you manage the club. And that's going to be sustainable in the sense of there will be not a next election that can change the way the club has to be managed. Fernando, which would be the exceptions to this rule? Uh, I'd say the most uh, uh, relevant one that everybody knows is Flamengo. Uh, we also have Palmeiras doing re relatively well. They are uh, starting to uh, enhance or, or embed some financial discipline. Even if you took these two clubs and you compare their performances, the European uh, uh, bigger ones, they are very weak. They, 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 their, their financial performance is close to the last performers in most of the European leagues. So even our best ones are still lagging behind, if you will. You mentioned Palmeiras as one of the teams who are better financially, but still, Palmeiras seems to be far from having a sustainable model. The team has a rich sponsor who is pouring money into signings and is exercising enormous political influence. So my question is, if the sponsor pulls out, could Palmeiras stand up on its own feet? Because we've seen this movie before. In the 19s, Palmeiras was banked by a big sponsor, and once the well dried up, the team was relegated twice and was left in pretty bad shape. Are we seeing the same thing all over again? In this case, Palmeiras cannot rely on only one uh, source of sponsorship. So we have to have a a, 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 a diverse way of funding the club and, and, and investing as much as you can, uh, taking into consideration your financial constraints. So that's, even if you took a Flamengo, you have already a, a couple of years running the club in a more uh, professional way. They are still not uh, well, uh, not, I would say, uh, uh, taking a path of 
long-term financial uh, sustainability because maybe there'll be some political change in the next years that can change everything again. You need to have a structure that will be uh, appropriate to attract capital, uh, manage results, and also organize a, a championship, create a league that's really strong and develop the, the Brazilian soccer as a product, which is not valuable a lot anymore. Brazilian teams are overly reliant on transfers and broadcasting rights for making ends meet, but matchday revenue is still very low. Ticket prices are still high and stadiums are empty. Uh, less than 20 million of, the, of, of people in our country, less than 10%, they, they go and watch the matches in the stadium. So uh, we have a lot of room for, for growing that. And when you look at the main reasons, uh, I remember that Price is a relevant one, but, but uh, distance but, and the number one is all about uh, safety and security. So I'm not sure if it's all about reducing price. I think you have to make sure the whole experience is much better. We have a lot of bad, even this year, if you look at the, on the news, a lot of uh, fights and, and, and things that will keep families away from watching games. So I think you need to work on a couple of elements. I'm sure there is room for a better, better, doing a better job on pricing, but I don't think there is a silver bullet on price to, to make things work in our case. I think that the whole, the whole system has to be, has to be uh, uh, improved. Teams board members don't seem to be willing to lose control of their clubs. Besides, the current associative model allows them to pay much fewer taxes. Can you envision a transition model so clubs will be more run like actual companies. The existing associative model does not work at all. When it works, is an exception to the world. Overall, you'll talk about the enterprise model. What I like about the mixed capital model for, for our case is given their DNA of our clubs, this mixed, mixed, mixed capital model could uh, uh, accommodate the associative uh, uh, area as a stakeholder, but also uh, opening room for uh, private investors both would, would be able to form like a board of directors that could run, indicate the CEO of the club and, and make the club be managed as an enterprise, both about the sports results, but also the financial results. When you talk about changing the model, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, changing the status quo and, and, and changing political power across the clubs. So we believe that there are a couple of uh, uh, triggers that can help uh, that process to, to, to happen over time. I think one of them is to be very relevant for the Brazilian clubs to have some kind of a temporary tax benefit for them to migrate from the associative model to the enterprise model. Because nowadays they have some tax benefits in, being, in staying the way they are. Uh, and that's going to be a, a huge barrier for them to, to move to a new model. But once you have that, and a few clubs trying to move and the, the investments coming and over years the results are being achieved, you're going to have like a halo effect in my opinion because the other clubs over time, they'll be less competitive compared to these this pioneer ones and they will naturally probably move in that direction to stay competitive. That's the way I see as a long-term process evolving. Uh, it's not easy to, to happen. It's, not, it's impossible to predict when. But I think it's a, it's a possible scenario in the next years. Unfortunately, a paradigm change seems unlikely in the short to medium term. In the meantime, however, even though the quality isn't the best, 
Brazil's national championship remains an entertaining tournament. With no World Cup this year, maybe you should take a chance on the Brazilian game. It might surprise you. This podcast was written and prepared by me and Ewan Marshall. And Maria Marta Bruno produces this show. If you like this podcast, rate us on any platform you may be listening to Explaining Brazil. It will take only a second, but it is really important for us. And the best way to support Explaining Brazil is to subscribe to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic company behind this podcast. Every day we have new content about Brazilian politics, finance, and society. We've also got exclusive newsletter services if you want to be briefed about what's going on in Brazil before starting your day. Subscribe now for a free trial and enjoy all of our content for seven days. And it's really free. You don't have to submit any credit card information whatsoever. Just go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Brazilian Report. And that's all for now. See you next week.